Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome everyone to episode 13 of Top of Mind. It is January 6th. 2023 and we are kicking off the first episode here of 2023 and on today's episode we're going to discuss markets we're going to get really really bold with everyone and we're going to make some predictions for 2023 and we're also going to review the 2022 year and just give some some color and commentary and thoughts on what all happened last year And lastly, we had a question come in on ETFs, and so we wanted to answer uh, some clarity around inverse ETFs and some other sort of interesting ETF things that are coming out. So thanks for your question, listener. All right, Hal, over to you, sir. How are things? Let's get us started. Well, Happy New Year, and yeah, things are going great. So it's um, 1030 Pacific time on a Friday trading day. So it looks like the markets are rebounding pretty nicely to, you know, after a pretty rough start to the year. Yeah. Markets up. Uh, Tesla bounced off a hundred a share earlier today. Hopefully that's, hopefully that's good news for everybody. So yeah, the, uh, the first couple of days were not awesome, but you know, we're just getting started here. Yeah. Just what few trading days in the year. You can't can't really, you know, ping a whole, pin a whole uh, year's worth of performance on a week. Exactly. Exactly. Well, why don't we start off with this ETF piece and then we'll dive into our 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 predictions and, and the 2022 year in review. So ETFs, how there were a couple things that we wanted to cover from last time. You want to just discuss at a high level those those items then we'll we'll dive into them. Yeah, yeah. What we didn't get to, um, I know we broke down the the bare basics of indexing ETFs versus mutual funds. Um, <clears throat> the ETF world has definitely exploded in terms of the types of offering offerings and levered ETFs, active ETFs, inverse ETFs, um, single stock, defined outcome ETFs, or. <laughs> heavily, heavily marketed to investors, especially retail investors. And we just want to, you know, briefly talk on some of these uh, offerings here. Yeah, thanks. And the question that came in was specific to levered ETFs. And uh, this is actually a great question because we see this in accounts often. Uh, For those of you that are clients, you you have our, our portal where you link up accounts that aren't directly managed by us. And so, you know, we have the ability to see the holdings and we commonly see these, these funds drop into there. And then we commonly, you know, (laughs) you'll know when you get an email from us like, Hey, don't buy this thing. So levered ETFs is where we want to start. And then some of these other sort of newer, newer inventions that have come out recently. So levered ETFs, why don't we start just with a description of what is a levered ETF? Levered ETF is just that. Excuse me. And it uses um, um, a position and it levers up the performance, right? Up or down by 
uh, two times, three times the the performance amount. So let's say you lever it against the S and P, and mm-hmm. say that the, it's a two x lever, and the S and P is up ten percent. You're expected to get twenty percent up. Mm-hmm. And the flip side, though, is that if the S and P is down ten percent, like we've experienced, you know, very recently, probably more than ten percent, you're down twenty percent because mm-hmm. the leverage in it is has a multiple. <clears throat> like a multiplication factor to it, right? And so the the ETF manager uses derivatives to, to let's say you have an $100 invested, he uses derivatives to get that $100 to $200 or $300 uh, mm-hmm. based on what the underlying S&P index is doing. Interesting. Okay. So the issue with these for clarity and why we email clients and say, Hey, don't buy this thing. So these are specifically designed. If somebody were to purchase these, these are specifically designed to not be held overnight and to be only used for what's called momentum trading. So if the market's going one direction, say during that day, and you're trying to leverage with or against that direction. And it actually says this right in the prospectus of the fund. I know that no one reads these. This is typically what we'll do is we'll pull up the perspective of the the fund that somebody owns. We'll highlight the section that specifically says these are not designed for long-term ownership. These are not designed to be held overnight. um, And they're strictly just designed to, you know, to lever that specific trade. Here's the issue. So um, you have diminishing returns in a normal market when held for for a period of time that's longer than a day. Take, for example, you buy a 2X S&P 500 fund. And let's say that the S&P is down 25%. So in a normal market, let's say you just buy the normal Vanguard S&P fund, right? S&P is down 25%. You need approximately 33% positive to get right back to zero. So just the math. 25% down, 33% up to get back to zero. If you buy the 2X, ETF that's 2xing the S&P, instead of dropping by 25%, you'll drop by 50%, double. But now when you drop by 50%, you need 100% to get back up to where you were. You know, 100 bucks in goes to 50 bucks. I need to get 50 bucks back or 100% return to get back to my 100 bucks. But here's the problem. 2x a 33% rate of return, remember from my prior example, is only 66%. And so the issue here is that when markets are volatile and you are double levering, you end up sort of petering out towards the low side. Uh, remember, you can go down 100%, not more, but you can go up a lot more than 100%, which is why these mathematically don't work for, for longer term trading. So that's why we never recommend and well, we never recommend that people buy these anyways. But if you do, we never recommend you hold them. And that's also why it says that right in the prospectus to not hold these for a long-term investment. Yeah, and we're also not recommending day trading as well. So that's probably that's the only yeah, that's probably the only scenario you you could use or should use any of these um, if you have you know for sure knowledge or a good hunch that the market is going to continue to run up or run down because mm-hmm. these these levered ETFs work in reverse too. There's called inverse levered ETFs, mm-hmm. or you're betting on the market to go down, which we've seen held in client portfolios that come over to us, you know, you know, held for more than one day, which is never recommended. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these work both ways. You could, you could, uh, 
double lever the market negative or oil negative or, you know, these types of things. These things exist for almost anything these days. Let's switch over to active ETFs. So I think a lot of people assume that ETFs are passive. At least that's what we're told by Vanguard ads. Passive meaning, you know, it's not uh, it's not actively managed, but there's sort of a newer invention that is active ETFs. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, we, we actually are seeing quite a bit of old mutual funds um, move from the mutual fund, what we call in the business wrapper, to the same you know, the same strategy and manager using not the ET mutual fund wrapper, but now an ETF wrapper. So it's the same fund, same management, same strategy, but with a different, you know, tax shield essentially, or a tax approach <clears throat> to investing. And I think that's what we're seeing initially with active ETS. And again, we have some newcomers like uh, Ark and Kathy Wood, who, who, just started out. Well, she did start out as a mutual fund, actually. I correct myself, but she gained a lot of nor notoriety through the ETF. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's one way. Another way through active ETF is you know you, you can <clears throat> buy, trade, and sell as if you were trading in a mutual fund, like I mentioned before. But now they're just coming out fresh out of the gate as a brand new offering, and you're. You're going to get all different flavors. We we use them too because they are more tax efficient. The the expenses tend to be lower, but they're in the same neighborhood as an active mutual fund. Which, on that side, to be fair to them, um, their expenses have been coming down as well. So, mm -hmm. so it's it's really how you want to approach it. And we've mentioned that ETFs are more tax efficient, meaning they're they don't typically kick out a, a capital gains distribution. And that's what you're going to get from active ETFs. So any straying from the underlying benchmark, you're making an active bet, right? Whether you realize it or not. So it doesn't, it doesn't take much to be active, right? Let's say you want growth, right? You want growth companies. You're making an active bet relative to the benchmark. I think that's such a good distinction, right? Because I think most people think that they're being passive if they're buying an ETF, but passive, really by definition, is you're buying a passive index fund, which would be like an S&P 500 fund or a Dow Jones fund, yeah. for example. But if you're buying a S&P 500 growth fund, eh, technically you're making an active bet against the market because you're, you're different than the market there. And on top of that, when these funds are then traded, you know, if somebody is buying and selling or they're selling the growth fund to buy the value fund or they're buying a healthcare fund or whatever, that is, again, an active move. And so I think there's a there's a disconnect with the ads just say, buy passive, it's cheaper equals better. And that's not necessarily true. Active funds can be more expensive. The cheapest funds are like the S&P funds, you know, they're maybe 0.03% to own. Active funds are more, smaller funds are more, and also actively trading, which almost everybody does. I'm not talking day trading. I'm just talking trading, period. Those are all active moves with or against the market. Correct. Correct. And, you know, Vanguard does have, you know, quite a few active fund offerings, right? They have mm -hmm. 379 mm -hmm. funds. 128 of them are active, right? And, and in, in combination of mutual funds and active ETF. So Vanguard, mm -hmm. um, 
you know who we who we do use uh, in our models or portfolios they they do have a extensive active background um you know outside of what the bogleheads like to tout it's it's uh you got to you got to be careful about what you're buying and know what you're buying cuz um certain passive ETFs they're going to follow different benchmarks right we look at small cap versus small cap and one's <clears throat> one is the benchmark against the Russell 2000 Another one is the benchmark against the S&P 600 small cap. They have very different makeups. Very so, different. Yeah, Chris mentions um, passive benchmark uh, ETS following the, the benchmark. So when the S&P kicks out a company and adds another one in, yes, you'll, you'll pick that up, right? You'll, you'll, you'll get that as it comes in if you own the S&P index. But <clears throat> certain benchmarks have different rules about reconstituting and when to kick in and kick out, right? Everyone knows GameStop and EMC, and not a lot of people know that they owned it in their small cap funds, and they owned it for mm -hmm. the majority of the year because certain funds only rebalance once a year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Know what you own. That was our theme last time, yeah. and we're carrying it over to this time. Know what you own. Let's spend just uh, a minute or two on these defined outcome ETFs because these are a new thing and they're probably floating up to, you know, getting in front of our clients to, you know, they're probably getting marketed to, to buy these things. So let's spend a minute describing them and then we'll move into our 2022 and 2023 comment commentary. Yeah. The ones I want to point out that probably clients should stay away from are the big uh, marketed ones that say, Hey, if you have Tesla stock, we have a, we have a solution for you, right? And I think the big thing is watch out for marketing that really prom over promises and under de under delivers. And I think this is what you'll get. Um, this is a form of a derivative trading as well because they use options to to cap the upside and you know um, limit the potential downside. So defined outcome means you're you're. <clears throat> Your defined outcome in the future is expected to be no le no more than ten percent down and no less no no more than fifteen percent up. So now mm. stock investors have, you know, um, a pretty much a strong expectation of what their particular stock holding would have, but they use options to do that. So uh, <clears throat> it's it's the way I explain it is confusing. I think um, that's probably why. Retail investors should not invest in something like this without professional advice or guidance here. But you know, certain certain um, situations might benefit from this, but it's it's not many, to be clear. So, do these all have capped downside in exchange for capped upside? Yeah, that's how you because you the capped downside is best basically a form of insurance, right? Who's going to pay for that? You or yep. who's going to give you that for free? You got to pay right, for right, it. Right. And to pay for that, you do give up some of your upside. Um, but like I said, that that limits your upside. So let's say you did buy a bunch of these when the market was down twenty five percent in July, and the market rebounded seven percent to end of the year. Right? You most likely did not participate on the upside if if you wrote if you bought a product like this. So basically, if you ride the bottom and then now decide I want this. It's too late because yeah. all you're doing is limiting upside. You got to be careful when you're using uh, really anything like this. Got to know what you're investing in. 
Yeah, yeah. No, Joan, back to the theme. Yeah, there's there's uh, some decent research on on these types of, of products and this this um I guess flavor has shown up in in investment products, more commonly in insurance products as well. And this concept of limiting or guaranteeing a minimum return and then providing some upside but capping upside, depending on how it's structured over market cycles, you because you gave up those largest return years, you actually end up earning significantly less. And so these have to do with kind of perfect timing and s specific situations where they would work out in, in someone's best interest. Yep. So I guess our message here would be, uh, don't take the bait, uh, uh, because you're, you're concerned of limiting downside in order to get a specific amount of upside. What generates sound long-term investment returns are those one-off years that do really, really well, which are always unexpected. That could be this year. It would be unexpected, but it could be this year. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's why these products appeal. Cause especially after a downturn that we experienced last year, yeah. it's just because it hits that emotional side and you know, just the data shows longer term that, that you're just giving away money. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I'm sure these will come up in the future. Cause as these products roll out, we get questions about them and we, we start analyzing them and determine, you know, if, if, if any client should have this and if so, in, in what way in their portfolio. So yeah, this will probably yeah. continue to come up for us. All right, let's shift gears 2022. Let's give a quick year in review. What did we think happened? What didn't happen? And I'll let you kick us off here. Yeah, thanks. I'll, I'll <laughs> kind of get into what, because we try to look forward. So I'll give you a glimpse on what our thinking is heading into the 2022, because it, it'd be, it'd be easy just to go look in hindsight. It's like, well, Russia <laughs> yeah. was obviously going to invade Ukraine, right? Yeah. Of course, um, oil would go up 60%. Duh, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. We traded that. Sure. Our general approach isn't to swing, you know, so significantly one way or another. So, <clears throat> so if you are in those cases, you are wrong because we are predicting the future here. Um, any wrong assumptions don't blow up the, the performance of the portfolio. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> So heading into 2022, um, a lot of 2021 actually colored our thinking. Um, 2021 began the year where these high-tech growth names, first and foremost, started dropping. Uh, I mentioned Kathy Wood. ARC was the poster child of that of February 2021, where it peaked and then it had a very dismal 2021, right? And then other growth names followed. That's because... <clears throat> what sparked that is the assumption of the Fed back in 2021 saying they are very soon, you know, going to raise rates, right? Because inflation is creeping up, hasn't crept up yet. They use the term transitory. Um, they said the economy has not fully recovered. So they were hesitant to raise rates, but they, they were looking at very soon. This caused the, the market to look ahead and, reward value stocks and punish growth stocks, right? What we didn't get though, by the end of the year was growth stocks re recovered and actually beat value stocks. But that kind of showed us what higher rates in the market reaction to higher rates was. And that's what, <clears throat> what we brought into 2022, where we started balancing out value. And just to everyone knows a passive S and P index or a mid cap index or small cap index, they actually all tilt towards growth. So if you bought hundred percent S and P you're actually, you actually have more growth 
um, allocation or more growth percentage in your uh, portfolio than than value. Meaning Why is that? Apple, Apple, Amazon, big, Tesla, big companies. Yeah, you're holding the biggest companies that are all growth type of companies, and mm. by <clears throat> you know natural state of things, the index is going to pick up all those mega caps, right? Apple was two trillion. I say was. Um, Amazon was two trillion. Tesla, right? So these these guys make up still make up the majority of a passive index. So if you just buy passively, you're going growth. That's that's <clears throat> it's like a sixty forty split. It's not even close. It's, so we we try to make it more of a fifty fifty split by picking up value names. Uh, <clears throat> specifically, we looked at regional banks. Um, because we knew rates were going to go up. We didn't think they'd go up to this rate this fast, but uh, banks benefit, right? If I'm loaning out money, I'm going to get higher interest rates. That's good for a bank. But what we didn't forecast for was a possible risk of recession that we're currently in right now. So that's that's going to dovetail in 2023 predictions. Mm -hmm. But um, <clears throat> yeah, we, we believed in 2021 making our portfolio decisions in 2022 that inflation was transitory. I know that's such a bad word now, but we thought inflation was driven by supply chains and, you know, semiconductor shortages that will improve. And we thought anyone who wanted a washer dryer was going to be able to get one. Yes, actually turned out to be true. What we missed was everyone wanted to go on vacation. Everyone wanted mm -hmm. to get out of their house. Everyone wanted to leave the country, go to Disneyland. I know the, the prices of Disneyland have gone up twofold, threefold, and the parks are still jam-packed. Mm -hmm. So it was ultimately a demand issue where we injected way too much stimulus into the, the system where people have way too much discretionary spending. And they, <clears throat> to be fair, they're, they're not saving. And we, we have data to show that the savings rate you know, in the U.S. has dropped, you know, nearly to zero. Significantly, yeah. So, again, it's a problem of impulse spending or consumption, not supply chain anymore. Supply chain, you know, go go look for a TV online. You could find one really cheap. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> while we're right about that, we were wrong about services. People just kept spending. That was the that was the interesting part, right? Yeah, spending will dry up at some point. It didn't. Yeah, it didn't yeah, at the, all. The, just kept the whole going. Southwest debacle last week, where you know <laughs> we had record number of travelers uh, stranded for the yep. holidays, trying to get back home or trying to see their loved ones, and mm -hmm. um, I think services might be the harder issue to solve for because we have a labor crunch, meaning we don't have people who are willing to work, um, whether early retirees or uh, young YouTubers who are unwilling to do some some of the entry level work that's required in in these servicing industries. You know that um, kids right now the the number one job in America that kids want is to be an influencer. Yeah, it's that's easy not, money, right? That's not good. <laughs> Hopefully that fixes. You know, if we do fall into recession, maybe that'll help these kids change from being influencers to something else. But, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, I want to comment quickly on the the bank trade. So you, you, you said a lot there, and I just want to unpack one or two things. So when we do make a, a slight pivot or tilt in the portfolio, we do this at what we would call a satellite level. So think of it as a core and a satellite. Your yeah. core strategy is... If it goes to zero, is, it won't blow you up. Totally. Yeah. Your core strategy are all of the things that you think would be in the portfolio. The S&Ps in there and mid-sized companies and small and some international, international and some bonds yeah. and all yeah. this stuff, right? That's always going to be in there. You're never going to see us completely sell out of U.S. stocks and go put all the money into China. emerging Brazilian <laughs> tech companies. We're not going to do that. And so when we make a trade like this, it's it's in this satellite space. Now, uh, you mentioned banks. We, for really much of the last decade, have leaned a little bit heavier into growth and growthy type things. Historically speaking, when interest rates are very low, that provides a tailwind to growth companies and they tend to do well. And so when we came into 2022 with the prospect of rates going up, we wanted to slightly rotate away from that and come back to a little bit more of a neutral stance. To your point, how we still lean a little bit growth because just buying the S&P leans growth, period. But we also had some satellite positions and some more disruptive tech and some other you know, unprofitable uh, clean energy type things, right? And, and, and various things like that is where we said, okay, what is our highest risk stuff for if interest rates go up? And we didn't think that rates would go up so much so fast. Um, and that really caused growth stocks, as everyone knows now, to really come down. And so that's those are the positions that we ultimately rotated out of. This is we're talking, you know, a tiny percent of, of portfolios yeah. into more regional banks saying, well, higher rates benefit banks. And then we actually later rotated out of that position because, because the risk yeah. of recession started to come up. Remember spending, you know, when 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 it hit the news, we're in recession because of two negative growth quarters of GDP, but then it hit the news. No, we're not in recession. Why? Well, what's the definition of recession? Well, the labor market has to blow up. Jobs remain very, very strong and spending remain very, very strong. Um, and so we when as the risk of recession started to increase, we said, okay, recessions are not good for banks. Even in higher interest rate environments, there's less lending. Let's rotate out of this position. Um, and we shifted more into uh, value companies, more you know dividend paying companies because they have very strong balance sheets and tend to be able to control pricing power better than say growth or tech companies. The example I'd leave you with you there is that if Walmart is raising the prices of back to school products, so is Target. And they both can control that pricing power and people will pay those prices because they're in almost direct competition with one another. Yeah. Versus if I'm Microsoft, I can't really raise the price of Azure because I've got direct competition with AWS and tech yeah. is in inherently deflationary. And so tech generally doesn't have as good of pricing power in inflationary environments. Yep. And that leads us into 2023. So again, after all <clears throat> the predictions of 2022, given lessons of 2021, really, um, we, we don't just look at history blindly. Oh, well, the seventies did this, right? The eighties did this. We're going to invest like this. It does right. that history. This worked then. So it'll work now. Yeah. History that doesn't, doesn't repeat itself, uh, beat for beat, but it rhymes sometimes. Right. So we kind of use it as context and then use recent developments to color where our outlooks go. Right. Cause the outlooks ultimately tell us where to shift certain parts of the portfolio or not. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> so 2023 predictions sure to be wrong because we don't know what the future is going to hold. There might be another invasion for all we know. And not to make light of that, but those are things we just can't account for because it doesn't exist in our world yet. 
right? And the right now, what we know though, the Fed will pause, pause, not pivot. <clears throat> and I think that's important. Pivot means the the Fed will raise rates to four and a half five percent, and then cut them once they get the recession. I don't think that's we're ever seeing that in tea leaves. We're not seeing the forecast or the Fed speak. And the Fed Fed members have been very very public in the last I don't know six months, mm-hmm. and they've been very loud about keeping rates high and not cutting rates and destroying inflation. So um, the the fact that we're seeing pricing for the future interest rates coming down so quickly, um, I think that's a mistake. And I I think that's a little bit too wishful thinking, but it, it kind of gives the credit, too much credit to the Fed that they can, you know, charge up interest rates and give us the recession when we want it. I don't think recessions work like that. One, the labor market, as Chris mentioned, is 3.5% now because we've got a very strong jobs number. Yeah. People are still hiring. And I don't think that goes away so quickly. The next point is the Eurozone. Europe will go <clears throat> into recession officially by quarter two. Um, <clears throat> these things take time, but if you ask anyone in Europe, I think they feel they're in a recession now. Gas prices are still expensive for them. Um, a lot of people don't realize this. Uh, gas prices are pegged to the U.S. dollar. What What's the U.S. dollar done in the last six months? Super strong. Yeah, and our gas prices are per barrel is $74. That's that's because of the dollar has gone up. So if you're buying those, those $74 in oil using euros or pounds or yen or a different currency, you're paying just as much six months ago, if not more at this point. Because mm-hmm. you, you have to convert those, those currencies into U.S. dollars. So from my point of view, Chris's point of view, uh, gas looks cheaper. It isn't, it, it's not cheaper. We're seeing some demand erosion across the world, but gas prices are still high for the European zone. All right, and then the next one, China. Um, I guess no surprise here. I think they're going to stumble reopening. It's I th- <clears throat> again not to get political here. I think um, the lack of vaccine access to their country has created issues. Right, their their hospitals are going to pile up if not already, and the the death count is going to rise simply because they they did not want to use the 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 Western mRNA vaccines that have obviously been so effective for really not just our country, but every other country that uses it. <clears throat> so, so you I think, think it'll they'll, sputter? They'll still kind of start, stop, start, stop, and then it'll be a yes. slow reopening? Unfortunately, that's how mm-hmm. the government is. Uh, we've seen some real extreme cases here in the last few months where, you know, they're locking entire cities down, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. severe punishment for breaking these uh, quarantine rules. And uh, this one probably is the biggest one that I go out on a limb on is uh, growth stocks will win the year. Uh, we still have a pretty balanced tilt, growth versus value, but um, I'm talking about quality growth. The Chris mentioned the Microsofts and Amazons of the world. They These companies make money, right? They're not Peloton, sorry, Peloton, or they're not uh, GameStop. The, these guys, even if uh, they don't have quite the pricing power, they still make a hefty amount of margin and i think they can still maintain that and the next two housing will correct not crash uh with mortgage rates 
touching 7%. I think uh, housing will still come down a little bit, but it's it's not the crash that we were expecting like 2008. Um, supply is still a big issue. Uh, we're, we're, we're having people who thought about selling no longer selling because what are they going to do? Where are they going to live? And I think that's going to be the biggest issue is if you're paying 2% mortgage rates, right? Why would you jump into a 7, 7%? Even if, even if you could afford to upgrade, it just doesn't make sense for a lot of current homeowners to sell and then move up. And then, then the next, next one is inflation will come down to 3% year over year. And again, we could debate the, the measurement here, but <clears throat> that's CPI, which has come down recently to 7.1%. Um, but I think it'll end of the year at 3% next year. And PCE, which is one we look at, is 2.5% a year over year. That's normally a lower one because people shop around. And I mean, really, it's just year over year numbers catching up with those month over month numbers that we talked about last time, because month over month actually looks pretty good, currently yeah. about 3.6%. So each month that goes by, we get another low data point to erase a high data point, and it, it comes down. So all of that is promising. Yeah, yeah, because right now, January's data is going to be compared to January 2022. Mm -hmm. So um, prices are still going to be higher but they're going to be compared to a higher number the previous year. So it's going to look like inflation's coming down, but prices are still, the level of price um, is still going to be much higher than what we're comfortable with. And we might see some deflation, especially in cars, I think. Um, Started. Yeah, yeah, used car uh, loan rates is uh, 10%. So who's buying cars still? Um, there, there obviously it's are ten percent, ten percent for used cars. Yeah, so quick by design, though people are buying less used cars because they can't afford it. And Mine's that's what the Fed is trying to do. Four and a quarter, I think. Four, four, three, four point three, something like that. And that was not that long ago. That happened fast. Yeah, yeah. Some, but again, some car dealers are uh, for new cars. They're buying bulk loan amounts, and then they yeah. can offer some of these promotional rates at like two and it 2.9 percent 3.9 percent which seems more palatable right right um, but the used car market is you know looking at the manheim used car index it's it's cratering what about bonds what do you think is going to happen with bonds uh bonds are going to be the winning asset class that's bold yeah yeah heading into 2022 we have one percent <laughs> yields now we're looking at four and a half percent on the short end like short yeah. yields and three and a half percent for 10 year, like intermediate yields. Um, the seventies, right. That's where they started. And when, hmm. uh, Paul Volcker raised rates to 20%, uh, bonds lost 9% that whole year. It's simply because, because bonds had a starting rate of four and a half percent, which is a much healthier rate than what we had last year. And here's a fun fact. Bonds have never lost money three years in a row. They were negative in 2021. They were negative in 2022, 2023. Could we break a record? Of course we could, but they've never been negative three years in a row. And they've only lost money two years in a row twice since 1926. So yeah. I had been saying a lot of my calls, we were living through the hundred year worst start, actually now finish in the bond market. We did it, we finished it. And now yeah. we're in 2023. So it's likely that bonds are positive in 2023. 
if you do get a recession, U.S. or really anywhere, that money is going to flow into U.S. debt. And that's going to bring interest rates on our intermediate and down, yeah. even if the Fed's raising rates. And that's what's yeah. called an inverted yield curve. We'll get into that. but We'll get uh, into that. that that's, that's what's showing up in our data right now is an inversion. So there is a rush to safety at this very moment. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, maybe we can unpack that more more next time. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Okay, good. Hey, thanks. That was rapid fire. Um, let's let's. Uh, if there's any questions out there, let us know, and we can unpack more of this stuff. But that's all the time we have for today. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks so much.